I was wondering, do you have any heady topper? We do. We do. It's just in the, the second door, bottom shelf. I see a lot of people that they, when they visit Vermont, the first thing they want to do is, is buy a bunch of Vermont beer or, you know, find what could be their first four-pack of Heady Topper. It's kind of beer hiking is what it is. I mean, people go on these beer tours. They come up and they take the tour around Vermont. So they used to hike the Long Trail. Well, now they just get in their car and they drive to Greensboro and stand in line and, and then go home with these stories about the beer. Among its many myths and images, Vermont is now considered a place to get excellent alcohol. Visitors ski, camp, take photos of leaves, and hunt for our handmade hooch. We usually get it on Wednesdays, and depending on the time of the year, whether it's ski weekend or whatever, it goes faster than other times. Artisanal alcohol has a long tradition in the Green Mountains. Take the liquor Italian immigrants made in Barrie. They would have truckloads of grapes coming in, and they did do their own local, homegrown, especially grappa. Grappa is not something you can get easily. You have to kind of do it yourself. Today's visitors may not know that Vermont used to be one of the driest states in the nation. For nearly 100 years, we had no commercial brewery. But experts say that dry spell may be one of the factors that led to our booming alcohol culture today. This is Before Your Time presented by the Vermont Historical Society and the Vermont Humanities Council. I'm your host, Lovejoy. Every episode, we go inside the stacks at the Vermont Historical Society to take a look at an object from their permanent collection that tells us something unique about our state. Then we take a closer look at the people, the events, or the ideas that surround each artifact. The still came from a house we were helping to empty. Today, we're examining a copper cylinder that's on display at the Vermont History Center in Barrie. Um, it's sort of barrel-shaped with a small, probably, the, well, it's the hookup for where how you distilled it. I'm really not good at how you distill things, so I'm not quite sure what you'd call that. Um, but it has a, a, you know, a tube coming out that clearly links to the um, distilling process. So what we have is really the only the largest part of it that survived. This is Marjorie Strong, the assistant librarian at the Historical Society. Marjorie told us this piece of a still came from the Bianchi family home in Barrie. This is a family that made its own grappa, and that was very exciting to us because we'd never seen an artifact. And we knew it happened, but we'd never seen it. You know, often they were destroyed when the place was raided. They would destroy the still. Clearly, the Bianchi family um, were not raided. Grappa was an important drink for the Italian community in Barrie. But long before immigrants brought over their family recipes from Europe, early Vermonters would gather in taverns to guzzle beer and cider. Look at our Constitution, it was signed in, you know, in Windsor, at, you know, at the tavern in Windsor. Adam Krakowski has written books about Vermont beer and the history of prohibition in the state. I mean, these were your cornerstones of the community where you were getting food, you were getting you know, beer, don't drink the water at that time period, so you have cider and beer being consumed all day. Vermont in the early 1800s wasn't a pristine wilderness. It was muddy, dusty, and had lots of manure. Drinking from streams and springs gave you beaver fever, what we now know as Giardia. Because again, we're before pasteurization, Louis Pasteur and microbiology theory, so you don't know what's causing things to happen. And it's just, it's more of that oral history of don't drink the water, it's gonna get you sick. Brewing beer or cider from that water made it safe. 
Because of this, Adam says that the average Vermonter at the time had around seven alcoholic drinks a day. Not just grown men, this included women and children. Even though those drinks were watered down, that's a lot of alcohol. And then came the hard stuff. By 1810, we have a massive boom of distillation happening in Vermont. Predominantly, it is cider brandy, it is uh, potato whiskey, um, which is closer to the Irish whiskey known as pochin, horrid, <laughs> raw stuff. But you also have the, your grains being used to make base for gin and, and for whiskeys themselves. Production's up, consumption's way up. In Peachum, it says, you know, that this, you know, distillery went up in flames, but don't worry, you know, that there's 20 other distilleries in the same town. And if this is not the land of milk and honey, this is surely the land of gin and whiskey. This imbibing had serious effects on families and relationships. And since many Vermonters were subsistence farmers, days lost to drunkenness could spell the difference between a family's survival or starvation. It didn't take long for the backlash to form. Pastors began railing from the pulpit about the evils of alcoholism, and a new movement was afoot. They're always addressing the social issues of the time, so if they're lecturing and, and sermons about drunkenness, drunkenness is happening. And to back it up, you're starting to see in 1820s the, the form of temperance groups starting to emerge. The temperance movement pushed for statewide prohibition of alcohol. By 1830s, it, it's a fever pitch. I mean, every paper is talking about temperance, and there's a noticeable drop in distillery operations. Inspired by laws that passed in Maine, the first anti-alcohol laws in the Union, the Vermont legislature finally banned alcohol sales and production in 1853. But there were a few caveats. But it doesn't outlaw fruit of the vine for the Lord, meaning religious wines, and it has nothing to do with cider. Cider, you know, you could press it, and they're basically saying, well, if you happen to press it and it happens to ferment, you happen to drink it, just don't, don't sell it. Don't give it to people, don't sell it. But you still have cider happening, and cider's still a huge component. You know, one of the records I found, it was like, it recommended, I think, 40 barrels of cider to be put down for a family for a long Vermont winter. That's 1,300 gallons. It's fair to say that none of us have that much cider in the basement to help us survive the winter. But hard cider still has a toehold in the state's culture. Okay. A lot of the tanks that you see in here are fermentation vessels, and a lot of them represent like a, a particular place in Vermont, like uh, Ripton or Goshen or, or, or even a particular farm. This is Colin Davis. Colin and his friend David Dalgano run Shaxbury Cider a modern cider company based in Virgins that specializes in rare and unusual apple varieties. So I think the first time that I tried cider that I was really excited about was Basque. The Basque cider was not sweet at all, like no sugar. And it was kind of peppery and citrus. You know, it didn't, it didn't taste like any apple that I knew of. Colin told us about an eye-opening tasting where he and David invited three friends to bring in their best homemade batches. All three of these ciders were really fantastic in our opinion. I mean, among the best that we had tried, they all had in common that some or all of it was wild apples. It was fermented with wild yeast. 
and aged for some period of time. That evening gave Colin and David the idea for Shaxbury's Lost Apple Project. In addition to their regular lines of hard cider, they now make special vintages out of apples they find on wild trees around the state. Sometimes people tip them off about promising trees, but most often they find these apples by simply driving around. Um, Especially up in the mountains, you just see them all over the place. So you stop the car and get out and taste them. If we find a tree that we want to pick, we try to find the owner. Sometimes we can't. In my experience, there's only ever been one person who didn't want us to to pick. Usually they just say, "Uh, why would you want these apples anyway? You know, we usually just feed them to the deer. Part of a cider maker's art is blending different apples to make a compelling whole. But Colin looks for apples that are unique, that can stand alone as a perfect taste representation of Vermont's soil during a particular growing season. It's terroir, to borrow a wine term. The lost apples offer other connections to Vermont. First, the cider, fermented with wild yeast, is probably similar to the cider drunk by Vermonters generations ago, before, during, and after statewide prohibition. And the search itself constantly brings up questions about the past. You know, you stumble across an old cellar hole or, you know, Robert Frost's cabin, a bunch of apple trees up there, and you just, you think those are there because someone put them there. Old cellar holes around Robert Frost's cabin. That fits nicely with the popular image of Vermont. But the story of Prohibition is more complicated and perhaps sadder in Barrie. It it was industrial, and in industrial towns are a rarity in Vermont. Um, You know, they're just not that many. Um, This is Marjorie Strong, who we heard from earlier. Marjorie told us that while the Industrial Revolution bypassed many areas of Vermont, it arrived in Barrie, Rutland, Springfield, and several other Vermont cities in full force. Um, but I think Barrie was more dramatic in some of its what happened to it, which is in a massive influx of immigrants that happened in a really short period of time. Over 20 years, it grew from 2,000 to 10,000. The railroads came in 1875, and they began opening up the granite quarries. 1880 is really one of the big start dates for the industry. It's when the Scottish began arriving. Then by 1890s, the Italian population is growing. So by 1910, say, you've got a population that's one-third Scottish, one-third Italian, and then everybody else. These Scots and Italians brought skills as quarrymen and stone carvers from the old country. They also brought attitudes about alcohol that set them apart from their Yankee neighbors. By the turn of the 20th century, Vermont had been officially dry for 50 years. But the debate about prohibition continued. Towns and cities were starved for revenue, and the fledgling tourism industry was taking a hit. Who wants to vacation where you can't have a drink to unwind? And the idea was, We have so many towns struggling, so many municipalities struggling. Look all around us at how much more developed the states around us are. We need the revenues again. We need to fix our roads and schools. Hurrah, you know, the same old, you know, political speech. In 1902, the Vermont legislature voted to replace statewide prohibition with what it called the local option. Towns of over 1,000 voters could choose to end prohibition in their area. But first they'd have to buy a license for around $1,200 a year for each saloon. Back in Barrie, this didn't do much to change the drinking culture. 
I mean, there are oral histories about, you know, the Italian women would bring bottles of wine to the men working in the sheds, and the uh, Scottish women would bring the whiskey, you know, for their lunch break. Drinking was a social activity, and they were used to that as a social activity, and I think that the, the idea that you even by 1902 licensed it, alcohol, that was, it's just very strange to them. Enforcers came down hard on Barry's Italian population. Police organized frequent raids in a couple places. One was picnics. There are articles about, you know, the police descended on this, you know, Italian picnic and words were exchanged, guns were pulled. It was pretty wild, some of it. The other was boarding houses. Some of these raids were massive. You know, they'd have 20 or 30 officers descending on Granite Street, which was an Italian neighborhood, and raiding houses. Barry was home to dozens of boarding houses run by Italian women. Marjorie said there's a specific reason for this. Because of Barry's climate, the granite carving workshops were closed tight during the winters, unlike in Italy, where the sides were kept open. So Vermont granite carvers inhaled more dust, which shortened their lifespan to about 50 years. It was like ghosts. There was just so much dust in the air. This left Barry with a surplus of immigrant widows who only had a few ways to support themselves. One of them was factory work, which was not an option in Barrie. The other one was going to domestic service, which is to you know be a servant to somebody else, which works fine if you don't have kids. And the a third option was to rent rooms in your own home. Running a boarding house could pay decent money, especially if you also served alcohol without a license. This did not escape the attention of local authorities. Not only did they have raids, but there actually was a newspaper article about a deputy sheriff who was extorting bribes from these women to not raid them. You know, these, these women with children going off to jail for five months at a time. I mean, I'm not sure what it accomplished. Uh, the conditions were still there. They, on the whole, all returned and did the same thing because there really was no, no other way. There was no escape. I mean, this was it. Perhaps the most famous person to document the plight of Barry's widows was the turn-of-the-century anarchist Emma Goldman. Well, Emma Goldman, I think, was one of the premier women anarchists, probably, of our time. She was quite renowned as a, a fiery speaker. She associated with uh, many people who the government felt were dubious and um, violent. Goldman came to Vermont on at least three occasions, and she found a welcome audience in Barrie. The city had one of the largest socialist populations in the country at the time. Emma Goldman clearly lived a full life, and she drew plenty of attention whenever she showed up in Vermont. But she wasn't too busy to notice the effects of prohibition in the Granite City. If you look at her autobiography, she has a whole three paragraphs on her, on her visit to Barrie and what she saw there, which was that a large group of the Italian women, especially the widows, were forced to sell alcohol and that the people buying the alcohol from them were often the politicians and leaders, that they would turn a blind eye. She felt that there was a lot of um, hypocrisy and corruption. Goldman visited during the local option era. But that hypocrisy and corruption only worsened during federal prohibition, which began in 1919. Since Vermont shares a border with Canada, organized crime rings used the state to funnel Canadian whiskey to big U.S. cities. It's been said that whiskey was hidden in Barry's granite sheds and maybe even in hollow monuments in the city's cemeteries. In any case, federal prohibition was repealed in 1933 
and the circumstances of Barry's Italian widows did improve soon after, in 1938, but not because also, of repeal. Um, I think the biggest thing was the OSHA laws, the, the laws for dust collection, that it just changed the health picture completely. I mean, the reason the women were being forced into boarding houses, you know, running boarding houses and selling alcohol was that they were widows, that their husbands died, you know, between 40 and 50, and economically they were totally at the mercy of a system that really didn't support them. What happened in Barrie shows just one of the many consequences of federal prohibition. Another was the shuttering of many breweries across the nation. Remember, statewide prohibition in Vermont began 65 years before federal prohibition. Breweries that existed in the 1850s were all gone by the time of federal repeal in 1933. Vermont went nearly 100 years without a brewery. Adam Krakowski said that long fallow period led to a more homegrown approach to beer making. In the areas that you have the rich brewing traditions, Pennsylvania, breweries, if they did shut down, they were shut down you know, for a 13-year, 14-year window. And you don't really have a, too much of a loss of knowledge on that stretch. When you have, you have effectively three generations in Vermont, I mean, you've wiped that knowledge out. Part of it, I think, is also the back to the land movement from the 1970s where you have people that are moving into Vermont from different areas of the country and they're bringing with it their, their tastes or their, you know, their likings. We kind of emerged with our own style. Well, we moved to Vermont in 70, 71, and uh, we lived in, uh, out in the country in St. Johnsbury and tried to do various back-to-the-land stuff, sheep and chickens and bees and... Bill Mayers is the co-founder of the House of Fermentology, a brewery in Burlington. Like many Vermont brewers, he started making beer at home. It had been actually illegal, and people winked at the law with this, you know, no one ever went and checked around, and then they passed, the law said that you could make up to 200 gallons in your homestead, I mean, wherever it was. In 1977, the federal government changed the law to allow homebrewing. This laid the groundwork for a major change in our nation's relationship with beer. Bill described his own experience making beer in a book called Making Beer. I mean, I wrote this book in 83 that was the typical odyssey of a homebrewer who comes to believe, after probably too much of his own beer, that his beer is good enough to... Uh, sell. My uh, proof of making good beer finally was that no one was pouring it into the ferns. Bill said he thought about starting his own brewery in the 80s, but changed his mind once he realized how risky it would be. He waited until 2016 to open the House of Fermentology with fellow brewer Todd Hare. Fortunately for Vermont, others were eager to take the lead in those early years. So it, you know, you have that stretch where that knowledge is lost in Vermont, and you know, you have the guys from Catamount, and you have uh, Greg Noonan at Vermont Pub and Brewery, where they literally sometimes made their own equipment if needed. They basically created their own brewing style, and they're not tied to any tradition. Greg Noonan opened the Vermont Pub and Brewery in Burlington in 1988. You could almost say he's the father of the Vermont craft brewing tradition. He wrote a book called Brewing Lager Beer, which was widely praised by the professional brewing community. I got to know him because he wanted me to 
help him get a brew pub law passed. By then, Bill was a state representative. In Vermont, the law said that a producer could not be a retailer. So we had to rewrite the law to permit brew pubs, which were manufacturing beer, to sell on premises. The pub and brewery was the first in Vermont, and it was the third in the East Coast, and I was the guy who cut the ribbon. So if you go down there, you'll see a picture of me right over the bar cutting the ribbon. Although craft beer in Vermont has gone through some distinct waves over the past 30 years, no one can deny that it's riding a major crest at the moment. The state that was one of the first to outlaw alcohol now draws thousands of people every year to sample its beer, cider, wine, and spirits. This may be a new and somewhat ironic development in Vermont's history, but it ties into a long tradition of Vermont marketing itself as a special place. You know, it's still, you know, you do shake your head and say, well, you know, (laughs) it's really good beer, but is it is it that good? I mean, is it? Is there is this great mystique of Vermont beers? If, if Kimmich had done this in New Hampshire, would it have been as great? If he'd done it in Upper New York State, or if Sean Hill had been in Iowa, maybe so. Before Your Time is presented by the Vermont Historical Society, the Vermont Humanities Council, and VT Digger. Our show was produced by Mike Dougherty and Ryan Newswanger. I'm Lovejoy. Thanks to our guests, Marjorie Strong, Adam Krakowski, Colin Davis, and Bill Mayers. This is Before Your Time. If you like what you hear, search for it and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And see pictures and artifacts related to this week's episode on our website, foryourtime.org.